Hello and welcome to the Scottish Football Show. Coming up today, double Dutch in another week of European ups and downs as Rangers turn their tie around to set up a tie with PSV for a place in the elusive Champions League group stages. Well done, the Unites have a night to forget entirely in Alkmaar. It is a new era at Motherwell under Stevie Hamill. How much difference can one man make? We'll find out. And uh, no pyro, no party, unless you're Aberdeen. We'll dissect that controversial statement. Yes, hello, I'm your host. No, I'm not Andrew Slavin. He's been struck down by food poisoning, but I'll be the late sub. I'm Grant Russell. And of course, joining me on the show today is West Ham United's Laura Brannan. Hello. Hello. Um, And yes, football filmmaker and editor extraordinaire Finlay Marks. Good day to you, sir. Hello. That's, That's a fairly impressive promotion you've got yourself, Grant, going from guest last week to host of the show this week. Oh, it's just what I do. It's just what I do. Watch out, world. <laughs> so anyway, let's get down to the action, shall we? Uh, lots to get through this week, but Finn, what caught your eye over the weekend of Scottish football madness? I wasn't quite over the weekend, but just uh, through the tail end of last week, uh, over the whole tragedy of Dundee United's uh, second leg in, in the Netherlands, I think my favourite bit, like I'm sure a lot of people last week, was Stephen Thompson earnestly asking if the tie was in fact dead <laughs> when it was 5-0 at halftime. He, he did redeem himself on sports scene you know, on a Sunday when uh, doing the, the highlights of the uh, Tom Lawrence's goal for Rangers. He said, oh, Tom Lawrence made it 4-0. Is that the game over? So at least he, he was able to make fun of himself. It's fair uh, play. Tom, yeah. yes. <laughs> and uh, Laura, anything hitting the news that we, we need to know about to kick off? God, I think if we look at what you did last week, getting everyone talking about the TV deal, it's not really stopped since you started this conversation. We've seemed to have some developments as well with talks of the new deal coming out mm-hmm. already so mm-hmm. soon. So uh, I'm just going to throw it back to you, Grant. Where are these latest developments? What am I here to do? Right, okay. I'll give a rundown. Um, So what happened off the back of last week, it came to light that the deal that's on the table from Sky is a £29.5 million deal a year, or that actually takes a few years to ratchet up to that, and it would be for up to 60 games, but a minimum of 48. And then on top of that, um, the ability for a potential purchase of additional rights to put a little bit of extra cash in the coffers. Also, a few reports as well that there's a potential that if Sky don't take up that option, that they might be able to then put it out to a secondary market if it exists, if there is interest. And then there's the part of the deal, which was really the bit that I was quite keen to hammer home and everything that I've been in social media. And it's about the rights of clubs to be able to show the games that are not in a Sky deal and show them through their club channels or put them out to secondary rights. But the primary one was getting it out to club channels. So in that deal is the potential that teams can sell up to five matches, um, home matches, per season, but only if they're not being played on Saturday at three o'clock, so teams might have to move them. So it's a bit of a positive development, but really doesn't feel on the surface like it's going far enough because you're still going to have quick mass, well, certainly just around 100 games that are still, 104 I think it is, that are completely under lock and key, and the only way you'll get to see them is through actually going to them. So... Essentially, they've taken into consideration what you've been recommending. <laughs> okay, maybe not you personally. No, no, no I wouldn't say that. But, no. It's just a coincidence. But it feels very Scottish football where it's just a token gesture. Yes, here's five games. 
um, go and do what you want with them. But five games over the course of a full season, it's equivalent of just pennies worth, isn't it? Oh, look, it doesn't go far enough. Uh, I think we can see that. And I think that's certainly the mood music that, you know, you're still going to have these games under lock and key. And to offer up to, you know, five home games a season for clubs, it, it, it feels a bit of tokenism. But, you know, there will be method in the madness. And what's since developed today is with Aberdeen putting out a statement that we would have heard maybe several months ago that there was this report that they, Hibs and Hearts and a few other clubs were doing an independent to review in Scottish football and one of the findings that came from it was we want to get broadcast revenues up to £50 million and I just want to pull out a quick few nuggets from that because really to paraphrase, it feels like this deal is going to be accepted because they see it as the way to just have a safety net for five years until 2029, have that safety net so they can do all the work in the background to try and rebrand Scottish football. And there's a really key line in here that I really want to pick out because it's really, really positive. They say they want to improve the image, brand and profile of the SPFL and they want to move the league away from a largely administrative function to a more robust and dynamic commercial structure. Could we finally see centralised marketing from the SPFL? A bit of help for the digital guys there and a real push in the right direction for the league. So, you know, if that's a trade-off and it's actually going to happen could be the acceptable one to have. Is, is that something that we can realistically afford to take five years to try and accomplish? I, I know we're kind of like starting from nothing here, but is that not like another five years of trying to develop the game to a point where we can actually start to compete, not just off the pitch, but the, the benefits that, that come on the pitch as well after that? Because one of the things I wanted to just ask your opinion on as well was the comments from Rangers Managing Director Stuart Robertson, where he was trying to equate the value of the audience pool that, for example, the old firm games bring in, which would be something similar to, if not above, a lot of English Premier League matches, which sell for around £7.5 per game, which, if you, you add that up over the season, would equate to, for the old firm alone, round about £30 million worth of value in terms of what, what they would do for an audience pool of a Premier League game. So when, when, when you look at the deal through that lens, it really just seems pretty dirt cheap and not not in a good way i don't want to suddenly sound like i'm going from the anti you know the the one has been really antagonistic to the company man here but it's only worth as much as people pay for it finn Mm. at the end of the day and you know if if sky okay you know and on the flip side of that there's a lot of criticism that the spfl are not going to market and there's no tender process and it'll just be sky but realistically the broadcast market in the uk at the moment is still not rich with potential candidates to come forward and replace sky as a primary broadcaster i just don't see it bt you don't look like they're there via player new entrance to the mar- entrance to the market so it's against a, a, a bit of better the devil you know and look sky actually do a fantastic uh, power of work for scottish football put money in so if what Stuart Robertson says is true, and I, I really do agree it is, I think there's a lot more value in Scottish football. We've got so many club chairmen through the Deloitte report saying it's worth up to £50 million a year. And you've got a strategic plan going in place at the SPFL. These are all steps in the right direction. If that's what it takes to get us to £50 million, and look, it's still a leap, and it's still going to be seven years down the line, then so be it. If it's actual meaningful action that we're taking then let's do that and let's actually try and build up the value of Scottish football rather than plucking numbers out of the air because it's all well and good and what Stuart says is absolutely true but it's only worth as much as people are willing to pay for it so we need to increase that value rather than just scream and shout and say this is how much it's worth. I guess the other flip side to it as well is that what we desperately want as a kind of more of an overview of the Scottish game is not to constantly 
be selling Scottish football to markets outside of Scotland as the old firm, that the way to build the game up properly has to be something that's a much more holistic approach to to the product, like you're saying, and that, I suppose, can only happen over time. An Aberdeen statement, I think, gave the, the real killer line because one of the drums I've banged for such a long time is Scottish football hasn't identified what its USB and brand proposition is. And look, it's not completely nailed here, but it's in quote marks and it looks like they're going to try and run with it. You know, position the league domestically international as, quote, the most dramatic, passionate and exciting in Europe. It's a good starting point. So we can actually try and put that forward and sell that's what Scottish football is and actually put the work in and the investment in to actually justify that and get people to believe it, then this is a big step in the right direction. Early delivery, Barisic went all the way from the goalkeeper. Oh, Yes, Rangers made history last week by turning around their first ever 2-0 first leg deficit and knocking Union Saint-Jouar out 3-2 on aggregate. So they now take on PSV Eindhoven at home on Tuesday night, going for that spot in the group stage of the Champions League. And to discuss that, we're joined now by Joshua Barry from the Rangers Review. Josh, firstly, you know, I think uh, many of the, the Scottish football press did the typical saying Union who, um, and then the inevitable happened in the first game. And I know the more learned of us wouldn't, wouldn't have dared say that, but just how impressive was that result against them back at Ibrox last week? They, they had, I think, 29% possession union. Their expected goals was, was about 0.5. So it's very much a, a case of can Rangers break, break them down. And that's different to when Braga travelled with a one-goal lead, uh, Leipzig travelled with a one-goal lead. This wasn't a team trying to, to, to implement themselves with the ball. And up until that penalty happens, I was kind of thinking, you know, you've not had a fast start. If, you, if they're, they're minutes away from going in with the perfect away first leg performance in Europe. But there was an inevitability about the Rangers once they got that first goal. And, and I, I can kind of conclude as my, my piece on the match with um, it was brilliantly predictable because Rangers have become predictable in a good way in Europe and fun. And, and you, you see even two seasons after COVID and, and, if, and people being away from the football for so long to have such memorable nights in succession has, has just been um, really, uh, been really, privilege to be, to be these games so they did really well it was a tough game to turn around but PSV will be I think a lot more difficult I was watching kind of in awe um, and slight jealousy as well not for the first time um, it just the general atmosphere around Ibrox at full time I, I genuinely I can't think of anywhere else that is better to be right now than Ibrox on a European night if you're looking for a good atmosphere like, how much did the fans really push them over the line to get that result? Massively. And, and the funny thing about it, Laura, is that every team that's come to Ibrox really since that Borussia Dortmund game has been asked the questions in the post-match press conference before. It was the same with uh, PSV today. They say, oh, yes, we know, we've heard about the atmosphere, it won't affect us. And then afterwards, they always come out and say it did. And, but, you know, being in the press gantry, you kind of have a unique view on these nights because you're sitting and watching everyone while we celebrate. And it is just, it's a bedlam. Um, last season after the, I think it was the second goal at Leipzig, uh, one of the journalists from, from Germany turned to me and just said, that was like an earthquake. Yeah, completely deadpan. Dead and, and that's probably quite, quite a good summary of it. But Rangers have, I think, Van Bronckhorst has managed to harness the energy of Ibrox. Um, Gerard had, did remarkably with Rangers in Europe to get them to where they were. 
but he didn't go at teams um, in the same way that the Van Broncos had. I mean, I think Rangers' passes for defensive action, so how intense the press was 2.2 for the first 15 minutes at home last week, which is just mental. So again, it's, it's just fun. It's a little bit of a risk, but so far it's paid off. And Van Bronquist, I think, so clever from the touchline and, and helping um, his team get, gain the upper hand constantly in these games. Just having a look ahead to the match against PSV, it's obviously a, a big step up from the USG in terms of opponent. But do you think Rangers have it in them over two legs to progress to the Champions League group stage? Well, Van Nistelrooy uh, was speaking today and he, and he said, something along the lines of we're going to go for it, we're going to be aggressive away from home. And I think if you're Van Bronckhorst, that's what you want. I think if PSV come out at Rangers tomorrow, that will suit them better. It's going to be really difficult with the, the second leg away over there because it's a, you know, the, the the playoff as well. I think Rangers will want to travel with the lead. But again, to use that Red Star example, it was kind of the same. Although the the, set, the first leg was at Ibrox, there was still that. I don't think when the game kicks off tomorrow, people will be thinking there's a game next week. Yeah, They'll just be thinking, here's this another European night that the Rangers fans will feel they'll, they'll, they'll be able to go and win. So I think it'll be really difficult. You know, yes, we have so many good players. Sangari, I think it's open in the middle. is a kind of a personal favourite of all of football Twitter. Um, obviously, Joey Veerman, every Rangers supporter will know about him. Uh, Javi Simmons as well. Also got Luke de Jong up top, uh, Gakpo has been linked with my night pretty heavily. So, you know, they've got a lot of quality, finished second in, in Holland last season. And, and if Rangers do go through, they'll have to be top. And, and that's what the, the manager said so far. Josh, it was a, a big transfer window uh, for Rangers. I think everyone acknowledged this was going to be a pivotal one. Just how successful has it been in, in strengthening and tweaking those key areas? And, you know, all the focus has been on strengthening that attack, which we're already seeing paying dividends with how it seems to be clicking, but also those reinforcements at, at the back and keeper, keeping Conor Goldson. Yeah, keeping Conor Goldson is, is a big one, Grant, because that's right at the start of the window. And it took a while, obviously, for Rangers transfer window to get up and running. And it was quite twitchy, I'd say, for a while. I think everyone anticipated, myself included, when Rangers lost that old firm game in early April to effectively end the league. I think everyone thought this is the time to, to refresh this squad, not just refresh the squad, but kind of redo it, rip it up, new core. Four years seems to be the squad cycle around world football. But as the season went on and Van Bronco's got a couple of big victories, it became apparent that he actually seemed to quite like the squad and the noises. And certainly from what I understand, you know, in keeping Arfield and Davis and Alan McGregor, a lot of that was driven by the manager who wanted to retain that experienced core. And at the moment, it looks pretty good. I guess you've got to give it a little bit more time to see, for example, if Rabi Matondo is your answer on the right wing. Because if Rangers get to that December time and they've still not addressed that position, um, then that hasn't been a success, but I thought he, he looked really exciting at the weekend. Malik Tillman is a player that I, I can't really think of a, a time a player's come in recently that I've been as excited about to, to watch on a pure talent level. Cholak looks to be a, a poacher. Again, there was a, a, a lot of criticism about him over the, his first couple of games because he wasn't really touching the ball. And then he's got three goals in, in, in three games. So again, the, the proof will be in the pudding if Rangers can return silverware this year. If Van Bronckhorst can continue to do what he did against St. Johnson at the weekend, which is win these games and put teams away, which Rangers didn't do last year, will they manage to survive without Calvin Bassey when they're playing Celtic and Old Firm games when they're playing in the latter stages, hopefully, of European competition? But at this moment in time, I think you'd, you'd say there's a lot of excitement, rightly so, about uh, some of the signings, yeah. Football, by the hell.
Elsewhere in Europe this week, Hearts start their journey by travelling to Switzerland to take on FC Zurich in the Europa League playoffs, although not being played at FC Zurich's ground because someone decided to book it for a concert. <laughs> it wasn't very good planning. Laura, they're, uh, they're not going to do a Dundee United, are they? Look, um, I'm not going to make any promises. This is Scottish football and it's uh, European qualifiers at the start of the season and as we've seen so far, literally anything could happen. On paper, Hearts, as an individual club, should be doing well at this stage. They were by far and easily the third best team in Scotland last season. They've earned their right to be here. And yeah, by absolutely no means why, why they shouldn't be in the Europa League playoffs now mind actually getting into the group stages. It would be fantastic. Finn, just how much can we dissect FC Zurich then? On a similar note, uh, bottom of the table, five games, no wins, one goal scored. They haven't started particularly well this season, but I mean they are the the Swiss champions. They won the league last year, so I think one of the big things for them has been the the top scorer in the Swiss league last season, Asan Cisse, left in the summer to join Lecce in Serie A. So he's obviously been a big miss. I think Hearts do have a chance in this one, and I don't think we realistically thought that Dundee United would have had a huge chance against AZ over two legs I think over two legs Hearts do they, they are up against their opposition but Zurich dropped out the Champions League qualifiers to Karabag who I don't think are a particularly good side they dispatched Linfield in the last round I think it might go in Hearts favour that they are at home in the second leg we touched on in previous episodes how good the atmosphere at Tynecastle can be for league games, I think it'll be a notch up again for a European match. And I think if they can stay in the tie, whatever that looks like, and they can take it back to Edinburgh and to a bouncing Tynecastle still with being in the tie, I think they could potentially get through. Yeah, and one to watch from FC Zurich is Wilfred Nonto as well. Italian cap, only 18 years old, but now Italy's youngest goal scorer. So one to watch out for, another threat for Hearts. Uh... Oh, let's, um, let's, I want to say less said the better, but we better say something about Dundee United. Laura? What an absolute disaster this game was. I have never seen a collapse like this <laughs> in all my years watching football. Um, I mean, look, I made comparisons to this, and I heard a few people saying this at halftime, actually. It reminded me of the playoff Scotland played against Holland yeah. where we went 1-0 up in the first game spirits were high confidence you know we were going to win the Euros at that <laughs> point go over to Holland and yeah we got demolished it was very similar to that where everyone just crashed back down to earth again with a complete and horrible reality check but the difference with this game um, what made it worse in this case was it was so quick. Yeah. The collapse was blink and like it's over. If you'd said at 20 minutes into the game that Dundee United were going to lose 7 0, you'd, you'd be like, what are you smoking here? Because <laughs> that's ridiculous. Dundee United started. Apt. It's very apt. <laughs> <laughs> Dundee United started so strongly. They, they picked up where they left off in the first leg, which was a very composed performance attacking positive looked like they were really going to try and, and go for it not just to defend the one in the league but to actually build on that and then the first goal went in and it was like the parting of the Red Sea and the heads just went 
Yeah. You know what the most galling thing for me was, though? This isn't, I know there is a smattering of good young talent in that Dundee United squad, but there was so much experience on the park. Yeah. You know, game management for boys that have been there and done it. Charlie Mulgrew and Tony Watt with Celtic. Uh, you know, as it's bet, you know, over 50 caps for, for Australia. Stephen Fletcher, mm-hmm. God, I almost forgot. You know, um, you know, good, exp- and even Glenn Middleton's been around a bit and, uh, you know, has, has played, uh, you know, certainly internationally for Scotland at youth level and good experience of, of big matches. That's what made it all the more galling for me. You know, good, talented young players can collapse and the heads can go, but those experienced boys, it was just really, really quite hard to fathom what was going on. It was just a capitulation of the highest order. You're bang on, Laura. As soon as, I, for me, it was the second goal. I think the first goal was... They were still in it, I think, when the tie was 1-1 overall. But as soon as the second goal goes in, just the heads just collectively dropped. Like It was like they forgot how to defend or press or do anything. There was so much space. It felt like a training game at points for AZ, like just picking them apart. And, you know, they were lucky it, it actually wasn't worse than seven. You think I'm going to answer a stupid question like that? Well, a couple of weeks ago, you guys dissected the departure of Graham Alexander after a year and a half in charge of Motherwell. And of course, it was announced the other day that Stevie Hamill would be his replacement. Now, Laura, obviously you and, you and I know Hammy. That's how chummy we are. Well, from our, our time at Motherwell, and I know you spoke to him about him quite a bit in uh, one of the previous shows. So let's get a perspective from the stand, shall we? Motherwell fan Andy Ross joins us now. Good evening, Andy. Andy... Straight off the bat, just how much difference can one man make? What's the key difference you're seeing already of a Stevie Hamill motherwell side? Just a general sense of enthusiasm, to be perfectly honest. I think the last six months especially have been very, very negative, both on and off the park. So it's been it's been tough. Uh, the European exit obviously made that tenfold and there was no kind of coming back. Stevie Hamill took over for what was a pretty drab game against the man, to be perfectly honest with you, but... We got the result, and then since then it has been a real upward curve. I know there was a, a disappointing result against St Johnston in between, but yeah, I think the mood around the place, the stadium is, is really, really up just now. So it's uh, it's quite an exciting time. Yeah, obviously it's very early days, and there's like a lot of work to do. But how about like over the next couple of weeks? Obviously with the window closing at the end of the month, what needs done in terms of recruitment? Because it's not just on the pitch that needs to be looked at; it's off the pitch as well, isn't it? Yeah, there's uh, now quite a few positions to fill, given that we now need a new head of academy. We've still got a wee bit of overlap as well in terms of, I don't know whether Graham's recruitment guy, Nick Dawes, will remain at the club, but the goalkeeping coach, Andy Dibble, has already left. On the park, I think the biggest challenge facing Stevie Hamill is getting some of the deadwood out the door. We're quite bloated in some areas and very short in other areas. It's going to be tough. Stevie Hamill kind of reassured us that even before he took the job, he had been looking into potential new faces. I would hope to see some movement on that this week. Whether that'll happen or not, it's uh, it's a bit of a mystery, to be honest. There's not been many names kind of linked with Motherwell. Kind of like the manager's job, to be honest. It was all quite a quiet process. There didn't seem to be many kind of standout applicants or anyone that went to the press and told them that they had applied with the exception of Simo Valakari, to be perfectly honest with you. Another kind of aspect is the, the Youth Academy. There's nobody that's going to know the young players at the club better than Stevie Hamill is. So it's the kind of mantra, if you're good enough, you're old enough. And yeah. it would be fantastic to see some young faces integrated into the first team squad. Well, that that was one of the things I wanted to, to ask about because... 
just going one step back, you're kind of making the point that there might not have been, you know, this kind of endless list of sexy names, for want of another phrase, uh, being linked with the job. But how much of being a Motherwell manager is about the results and how much of it is about the cultural fit? You know, not necessarily being just a former player, because Stevie Hamill's a legend of, of Motherwell, but kind of being that representative of what the club stands for in its roots, its work ethic, its beliefs. Do you feel that in that respect, Stevie Hamill is actually a better fit than maybe a, a more high-profile manager that could have got the job? Yeah, I think I do. In, in terms of Stevie Hamill himself, he's been at the club with the exception of 18 months since 2002. Yeah. So it's kind of, uh, there'll be young supporters that don't know a mother without Stevie Hamill being a part <laughs> of the club, which is a, yeah. it's a really big thing. The one thing he's guaranteed is the support of the fans because yeah. he has, he's got that iconic status within the club. And that is much more attractive than someone coming from down south that doesn't know the ins and outs of the club. They don't yeah. know what it stands for in the community. They don't, they don't get it. They don't have that buy-in. And I think that's where there was a bit of a disconnect as well with Graham Alexander. There wasn't that feeling that, I don't like the kind of, he's one of our own type thing, but I never really felt that there was much effort made from the, the coaching team that Graham Alexander brought to connect with the supporters and the product on the park kind of related to that as well. We don't expect to win every week. We're not a club with a massive budget or players that are going to get results or perform week in, week out to nine or 10 out of 10 levels. But yeah. We want to see commitment. We want to see decent football. The feeling of indifference that I felt when we finished fifth and qualified for Europe kind of summed it up for me last season. That is a very strange feeling that there was quite a bit of euphoria around the stadium. But I get back to the car and just thought, I kind of shrugged my shoulders almost. It, it didn't feel like the achievement that it was. We don't qualify for Europe that often, but it didn't feel like we kind of deserved it, which is a strange thing to say over a 38-game season. But yeah, it was hard to extenuate the positives there. Yeah, and, and just, just to go back to, you know, Stephen Hamill, the, the man and the fit, I think for anyone outside the club probably looks at that and goes, oh, you know, rookie boss, untested, okay, is within the club, but not any management experience at all. And then, you know, Stephen himself uh, came out and said, well, you know, I've managed hundreds of people every week in, in my role that I have. I understand this club, you know, fundamentally. And is is that what's really kind of appeased the Motherwell fans? Because let's say, for example, I'm going to try and pluck a name out. Let's say, let's say in the summer, Scott Brown got the job, for example, if it was available then, and that would have been another rookie boss. What sets Stevie apart from that type of appointment? And, well, I guess that's kind of obvious, but just how much more would that buy him time with the Motherwell supporters to, to, to make his own mark on things? See, I, I kind of said in our own podcast last week that I thought that the the reaction was universally positive and then I was stopped mid-sentence almost saying, well, you've not read this or you've not read that. And there was some saying, if it's not going well at Christmas time, then <laughs> the fans will turn. I, I certainly don't think that's the case. I think that there will be allowances made for a, a lack of experience. I would hope to see a more experienced head kind of come in as part of the coaching team, which I don't think is out of the question. The fact of the matter is, things weren't going brilliantly before Stevie Hamill arrived. He's going to need a few transfer windows to turn things around and put his own stamp in things. And I do think that that goodwill he's got, that he's built up over nearly 20 years at the football club, will certainly go in his favour. Quite a bold move from Stevie to decide that I'm going to uproot from 
yeah. a job at the academy, which I've done well for what, four or five years and trying my hand at management, it could have quite easily stayed in that role for another five, six years and maybe moved on to a bigger club. But instead he's went and, and tried to push his limits. And I like that. I think that's a, a real desire to make a success of himself. And at this moment in time, on the back of a 3-2 win against Aberdeen, I'm feeling full of optimism. But I really do believe that he'll get a, at least a year of, of really solid backing from the supporters. Andy, that's brilliant. Thanks very much. And I feels remiss not to mention your podcast. I should have I should have done it at the start, the MFC podcast. Not a rival to this podcast, just a really good listen on all things Motherwell. So thanks, Andy. The dogs bark and the caravan passes. The caravan keeps moving. The caravan keeps going. Celtic uh, ran riot over Kamarnik 5-0 away from home. Uh, three goal of the season contenders in there, just the three. Yeah, it's not the first time we've said that so far, is it? This uh, short season so far. Celtic contributing with contenders, but not just one this time, three. Jota with the long-range strike, absolutely fantastic. Textbook top corner, postage stamp. Um, But that was them just getting started. Uh, So we had Jens after that, overhead kick, you know, who doesn't love a good bicycle kick? From a central defender But they didn't stop there. (laughs) But they didn't stop there. Giamakis... Not only was it an overhead kick, it was a nutmeg at the same time. Now, I'm sorry, but if that isn't a goal of the season contender, then just give up now, because that, to me, is the winner. (laughs) I just, I love a bit of skill like that. Not just a bit of skill, but something that actually makes you go, oh my God, (laughs) like what? When you're actually watching the highlights back. (laughs) Moving on elsewhere, one of the games of the weekend at the, uh, I'm going to call it Almondville because Tony Macaroni haven't paid us any sponsorship. Uh, (laughs) 2-1 win over Hibs. Uh, One of the big talking points, which was the best fight of the weekend? Davy Martindale against Lee Johnson or Thomas Tuchel against Antonio Conte? Finn, rate those fights. I, d- I didn't feel that the Martindale Johnson one was quite as ferocious, but yeah, it's. I, I always like to see when managers are passionate and there's a bit of a, a Barney on the touchline or whatever. You know, it's. Um, I think it's good. It's good to see people that are passionate about their jobs, and I think the game itself, it it kind of just felt like it was ebbing and flowing in different ways. I think Hibbs felt a bit Jekyll and Hyde. Livy definitely deserved to be ahead at half time and what a goal again as well by Nibley. Absolutely yeah. fantastic just running through. But I think Hibs could have won the game with the amount of chances that they had in the second half. It's just they didn't take them, which has been a bit of the story of their season so far. And, you know, Livingston, we all know what they're like. Like they they always give so much effort. I think Martindale after the game talked about the way that that's what they'll have to do during the season is that they have to graft to wins that there's not they're not really a team of superstars was his phrase but the team is is the star it's it's when they collectively pull together and work hard that's when they'll get the rewards for their efforts yeah and kudos as well to Davy Martindale after the game for cracking out with the stat that someone just happened to tell him that he's uh, seen off four Hibs managers in terms of results uh, at Almondville certainly ticking the brief for the uh most dramatic, passionate and exciting league in Europe. And uh, that's also true in the Championship. Five-goal thriller between Queen's Park and Partick Thistle. Simon Murray inevitably popping up with the uh, the win for the Spiders. I think looking at the fixtures in advance, this would have been one of the ones I would have picked out to go and see if it had the opportunity. And I don't think it really failed to deliver in the end. Two teams that are very much going for promotion this season... If anything, I would have actually maybe tipped Queen's Park to even be um, one of the strong contenders for the title. Um, 
But, yeah, they took the honours on Saturday. Look, this is the first time Thistle have actually lost a competitive game to Queen's Park in 40 years. <laughs> so, a wee bit of a sore one for them. Yeah, good for the, the neutral watching, but not so good for Partick Thistle. But it keeps them level on the table. They're fourth and fifth, respectively, right now. So, it's still very, very much to play for there. Thistle, though, it's maybe a wee bit warning signs. Like, they've scored six goals in three games, but they've also conceded six goals in three games. So, yeah, as I say... Great for the the neutral watching, but if you're a Thistle fan, you're going to want to see the defence tighten up a wee bit in the coming weeks. Regrets? No, it's good luck, isn't it? I didn't find it funny. Towards the end of last week, Aberdeen put out a statement about pyro and unacceptable behaviour, essentially telling fans to uh, behave themselves. So, Laura, we know you're in complete agreement with that. So, Finn, just want to... No, no, okay. Uh, Laura, shock me. What did you think? Right, okay. Where, where do I start? This statement is embarrassing. The tone is all wrong. Okay, so on one hand, they talk about seats being damaged and objects being thrown. Fine. That's not okay. So, yes, address that. But then they go on to say, and I quote, We strongly advise that no balaclavas are worn whilst approaching or within the stadium. They only attract attention, it unnerves other fans, and it's not an image we want to encourage. So they're basically telling fans what to wear. So before we even get into the pyro debate, they are telling fans what to wear. Now, last season, I'm sorry, but we were being told to wear masks in football grounds to cover (laughs) up our faces. And I mean, I don't even want to go down the route of what would someone, what if you were religiously covering up your face for a different reason? But balaclavas in the the coldest part of the country, where it is permanently winter, why would you not want to cover? Up? No, like right, okay, I digress. That alone was stupid. But then they go on to talk about, oh, at least fourteen pyros were discharged at the game, and how they are working with police to punish those involved. And I'm really, really disappointed in Dave Cormack here. And he's taken such a strong approach because, to be honest, I expected better of him. You mean, you, like, let's, as people who worked in clubs and, you know, try and lift the lid a little. And we've, we, do, honestly, we, we don't know all the ins and outs of this, but if I take an educated guess at that and I look at the police statement at the bottom, I'm putting two and two together here and saying that Aberdeen have been told to do that. Oh, there's going to be some trouble further down the line. Now, and, and, you know, maybe that doesn't reflect well, but... You know, Finn, I wonder, well, I'll get you, I'll ask your view on it, but my kind of follow-up to that will be, you know, is this another classic of chase the problems rather than actually suggest the solutions that make it a, a good atmosphere and environment for everybody? I think so. It, it's To me, it's kind of a bit of a difficult balance because I think the whole thing about pyro and balaclavas, if, if you want to include that, I think it's something that's kind of grown quite a lot in the last couple of seasons. We've seen it at a, a lot of teams where they've got like, not quite ultra sections, but they've definitely got hardcore fan bases that are, that are coming to the games, which I, I, I'm not putting it down as a negative. I think in a lot of cases they can add brilliant atmosphere and colour to games. But I think the balance is difficult because y- y- Scottish football can be a bit of a late adopter in many things. We've even touched on that with the TV deal at the top of the show. But I think culturally, it's something that's so alien to a lot of supporters around the country, maybe families, but particularly older fans. I think they just, they do feel uncomfortable because they don't know what it is. It's never been part of 
fan culture in Scotland for, you know, the past 150 odd years using pyro or whatever. So it can be quite intimidating and maybe a wee bit scary for people. And you want to try and create an atmosphere, especially when so many of these clubs are provincial clubs, they're community assets. You want to create a welcoming environment for families, for older people, for communities to come together. And I think that might be part of the element that's there. I, I totally see your point of view as well, though, Laura, because I remember going to Ibrox a lot when I was younger. Sometimes the atmosphere can just kind of flatten out. And it's, you know, for all that can be said, for, for better or for worse, about the Union Bears, in recent years, having gone to Ibrox and witnessed the atmosphere that they can help bring and instigate with the tifos and the drums and the singing and everything, it can really lift the atmosphere. So I, I don't think... It's a question of trying to rule it out entirely. I think there's a way that they can try to look to work with, you know, these supporters that want to introduce that that side of fan culture to the Scottish game. But there's also a way that you have to do it being savvy and taking into consideration the way that other fans, particularly older fans or families, will feel at the games. Yeah, no, that is an aspect I completely agree with. Um this attitude of there's just no pyro, we're just going to close the doors, it's a criminal offence, uh, end of story. It's like many attitudes in Scot- Scottish football. People are, are scared to change. Uh, they're scared to think outside the box. They're scared to actually do the work and research other options available. And as a result, we just get the door slammed in our face. The, there are safe pyro options out there, and I'm sure we'll get on to talk about that, but just to pick up on your point there, Finn, about fans might not be comfortable with it. I think, yes, on one hand, there will be fans who maybe aren't comfortable with it or don't agree with it. But we've also got to accept this is 2022 now and football does move on with time. Me me, me and you, Finn, when we both worked at Copa 90, we looked at this in great detail of the different types of supporters you get in a football ground. And there's many different sections around a stadium. It's not just one big equal stand. You have the family section, you have the ultra section, you have fans who will go to every game and treat it almost like it's a cinema where they don't want to sit and talk to anyone during it. They want to zone out and just watch the game. You have ones who are there just for a social event to see their friends. Everyone will take on a football match in a different way. And that doesn't mean that the ones that are going there to be ultras or the singing section are are negative. They're not a Mm. bad thing. They're just a different type of audience and they're allowed to have their own section. And that is why we need to try and work with those sections and bring in what is safe and can be controlled where everyone wins. I think that's fair, but I think there's also an argument potentially around the fact that, again, like you're saying, when we both worked at Coppa 90, we would see incredible footage of like you know fan groups and ultras in Italy or Serbia or South America, and it is a completely ingrained in the fan culture there. I think there's something... And this this is, I'm speaking purely on a personal level here. I'm not trying to make a generalisation and I'm not trying to speak about fans that are into that kind of stuff or wanting to bring that into the Scottish game in a negative way. But the thing I love about Scottish football, and I I would say it's more of a a British football thing as well um, over the whole of the, the UK and Ireland, is this wonderful symbiotic thing that happens between crowds and and the team like I I, I, lo- I like the ebb and flow of a game I like that good play warrants then the crowd to to rise up 
I think sometimes, you know, you go to some of these other countries and it's regardless of what's happening on the pitch, there's just constant noise, constant drumming, constant singing, which can be a good thing. But I think it's just it's something that I, I personally really enjoy about Scottish football culture from a traditional sense. I'm not saying that it can't coexist, but because fans that are, tend to be in that ultra section or that type of group and use pyro and the drums and everything else, the very, very loud minority that you're talking about within that group of the wider colour and context of the different types of fans that go to games. And I think it's just something to take into consideration when trying to marry that up with what I think is one of the most brilliant bits about Scottish football tradition and and British football culture. I'll just cut in before Laura explodes like a badly lit firework. (laughs) Um, What I would bring as an observation to this is that there's been a fan culture in Scotland that has really exploded overnight. Let's be honest about it. If you think of Un- well, Green Brigade were kind of the kind of forefathers of it, but then Union Bears, Well Boys, you've got the groups at St Mirren, um, at Kilmarnock, at St Johnston, and then Aberdeen have done a power of work with the Red Shed and real positive stuff to try and build that from the club up, working in conjunction with the supporters. But what I think we've got to right now is a stage that that fan culture has grown so exponentially, so quickly that it's now at a tipping point that these supporters now feel like they want to take it to the next level. They want to see how far they can, they can you know, make the displays better, how much they can make the atmosphere more intimidating for opposition clubs and make it more positive for the team on the park. And now we're very... The two trains are coming down the track at each other of what fans expect. Well, actually, no, the club is the static train sitting on the line, quite frankly. And, you know, and it's absolutely bulleting towards that attitude from the game as a whole of... They're going to cause us problems. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. You know, some clubs are very good at working with the supporters groups. What we need is this actual joined up and a cultural shift Mm. as Scottish football as a whole to say, okay, what does the future look like for fan culture in this country? And how can we actually cultivate and grow it and support it rather than, because if we don't, I warn you right now, this is absolutely take this as red. If we continue with our same stuck attitudes of not trying to make this work, this will descend, this will get worse. Mm-hmm. There will be more incidents, more and fan culture will wither and die because all those people will end up banned from football grounds as the kind of you know, the, the resistance against against clubs pushing back will just grow and grow and grow. And what is actually a really, really strong opportunity to create a culture, whether you agree with it or not, could be lost. So what we need is Scottish football to say, okay, safe pyro, stand in sections, actually segregating them out in the ground, really try to help them and give them codes of conduct and try and support them and also to show them where the lines are is what's needed or there will be a tipping point really coming quite close down the line. I think we've already seen a few bits like that already. Yeah, I think also the difference between Scottish football culture and maybe you look to the likes of Eastern Europe where they are out there to to almost like create trouble and make make the most of turning it into hell when you're in a stadium. I don't think Scottish football is like that. I very much get the impression fans are willing to work with clubs and if there's a safe option out there that they're allowed to use, they will go down that route. The problem is that no one in Scotland has actually researched this properly and looked at the reason, looked at how we can do it. Look at Denmark. Bromby fans use specially created safe flares. They're cold. They're designed for football fans. Why have we not looked into using this over here? In Austria, 
there's been successful trials with throwing displays onto a protective screen before you get to the pitch. Again, why can't we look into using something like that? In the USA, in MLS, they use safe boxes where you can put smoke bombs into the boxes and that saves you from holding a hot firework, so to speak, a hot piece of pyro in your hand. Like, I know we've had the discussions, me and Grant, we've had discussions at Motherwell before about looking into that, but that's as far as they go. They go, their discussions in an office and their pipe dreams, why are they not pushed further? There's also the argument of, of oh, a mathematic, um, I don't want to be in contact with, with smoke. Then, yes, sit somewhere else in the ground, but then you can also look at the case of gigs and nightclubs have smoke. They're smoke machines. You can get non-toxic versions of smoke. So again, there's so many avenues here that Scottish football just haven't explored yet. Do you know what, Laurie? You've actually convinced me and I've actually just... <laughs> I've actually just ripped open a flare and lit it in the podcast studio here in Melbourne. It's filling up with smoke and I don't know what to do, but I'm I'm ready, I'm fired up, let's do it. Whew, right, I think that's uh, all from us. Thanks for listening. Uh, thank you, Laura. Thank you, Finn. And thank you to you too, Grant, for hosting. Thank you, that's, that's very kind of you. Uh, uh, thanks also to uh, Joshua and to Andy and uh, get well soon, Andrew. The whole gang will hopefully be back next Tuesday, but from the uh, most dramatic, passionate and exciting podcast in Scottish football, goodbye.